And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, April 13th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, it's Labor Day in April. The biggest federal employee union expands its international presence. Plus, AFGE and the Veterans Affairs Department conclude epic negotiations. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Office of Personnel Management faces a busier open season next year. It will move nearly 2 million Postal Service employees, annuitants, and their eligible family members into a whole new health insurance marketplace, separate from the rest of the federal workforce. OPM is out with a new interim final rule, as required under last year's postal reform legislation. For details, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the OPM's Associate Director for Health Care and Insurance, Laurie Bodenheimer. It is a big undertaking. It is an all of OPM sort of enterprise effort. With that being said, there are some program offices that perhaps have a heavier lift than others. And the three program offices that are working collaboratively and closely are healthcare and insurance, my program office, retirement services, and our chief information officer because of the technology demands that the statute requires. One of the things that made us both a combination of excited and terrified at the same time (laughs) is that we were given this opportunity to create a new health benefits program for a large population. So we absolutely want to do this right with the best interests of the enrollees always in mind. So there's a lot of work around some building some technology, as I mentioned. There's that special enrollment period that current annuitants who are eligible for Medicare can take part in. And it's trying to identify them, notify them, and follow up in that six-month period if they've not enrolled. And they don't have to. This group of annuitants are being given this opportunity, which will eliminate for them any penalties that they might have incurred because they didn't enroll in Medicare timely. We're working obviously very closely with the Postal Service because they are responsible for the education program for employees and annuitants, but they are seeking our input and our advice on different ways to communicate how certain things should be phrased, make sure they're both technically accurate and understandable. One other question I think is, prominent amongst people hearing all of this and knowing that the switch is imminent for them. What happens to postal enrollees of FEHB that don't make that switch in time for that FY24 open enrollment period and have a plan in place in time for January of 2025? We wanted people to have a choice as they make this transition, which quite frankly will be difficult for for many folks. Even during normal FEHB open season, people are often overwhelmed by the choices that they have and maybe sometimes don't make a change because they're afraid. These 1.7 million postal 
employees, annuitants, and family members must make a change. So our first goal is to provide as much information as possible to answer questions, to help annuitants enroll if that's what they need, for example, to make this transition as easy as possible. If someone does not choose a postal plan, someone who has to choose a postal plan and does not do so by the end of the open season, we will move them to the lowest cost nationwide postal plan that doesn't have a membership fee. This is consistent with what we do in the FEHB program currently for annuitants because, you know, every year there may be an FEHB plan that decides not to participate anymore. And if an annuitant loses coverage, they can't get it back. And so there has always been a process to make sure that they maintain an enrollment, even if they sort of come in later or the next open season and say, I I want out of this plan. I want another one. That's perfectly fine. Because after January 2025, those postal eligible persons may not remain in their FEHB plan. They're no longer eligible. So we're trying to do our best to educate and to the extent that that doesn't work for some people, move them to the plan under the criteria that I described. One other thing that I think is front of mind for a lot of people who are impacted by this is making sure that the plan that they have, there is a similar plan that's going to be in place for the PSHB and help me better understand what efforts are being done there and in what circumstances folks might not see the same exact plan under the PSHB. So we have been engaging in both group meetings with current FEHB carriers since the fall, every couple of months, allowing them to ask questions, how the program will operate or more specific questions. And then in the more, I would say the last six weeks to two months, have started engaging with plans individually, individual meetings. Obviously, the IFR has been critical Some of other questions we simply couldn't answer as we were actively working on this regulation. But now that it's in the public domain, they can see where we are intending to take this program. So, for example, we did an informal survey and most of the carriers said, yes, I'm interested. A few of them said, "Ah, tentative. I need to see the IFR before I can make that decision. Some plans have very small postal enrollments. I'm sure they're making the business decision that it may not be the right business decision for themselves. But, you know, we are engaged in conversations and dialogue and want to make sure that there is sufficient choice for every postal eligible person to have a good amount of plans to choose from, even some of the smaller plans that they may currently be enrolled in. So it is uh, under active work and we expect to open up that application sometime in June with applications due at the end of August. So activity will be happening in just a few short months there. One thing I saw in OPM's FY 2024 budget request is standing up this customer support center. Is that being stood up with the idea that it's going to be focused on these PSHB folks? Yes. The proposed Postal Customer Support Center is designed to service this population. So it kind of all comes together. You know, we are centralizing the enrollment functionality in one bit of technology, one system that will have decision support, enrollment, premium reconciliation, 
a whole gamut of functionality that right now is very decentralized in the FEHB program. So the customer support center is a key component. We certainly want the technology to be available for those who are more facile or more comfortable in not talking to a human being and and getting online and doing it themselves. But we do have you know, a good number of employees and annuitants who just like that certainty of talking to a person, getting their questions answered, and providing whatever assistance is needed to both enroll them and correct any errors that undoubtedly will happen in a in a new program. Laurie Bodenheimer, OPM's Associate Director for Healthcare and Insurance, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, AFGE and the Veterans Affairs Department conclude epic negotiations. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. It took more than five years, but now the American Federation of Government Employees and the Veterans Affairs Department have a tentative new master collective bargaining agreement. For details, we turn to the first executive vice president of AFGE's National VA Council, Mary Jean Burke. MJ, good to have you back. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. So this must feel like a big red letter day. I mean, this is one of your biggest (laughs) bargaining units, correct? Yeah, over uh, 280,000 people fall under this contract. It's probably the, one of the largest contracts in America. I was going to say that's bigger than like Ford Motor Company has for this <laughs> unionized employee. Yeah, if all those people were dues paying, that'd be great. But uh, they fall under the contract regardless. Got it. Now, this agreement would start when and what would it replace? Because you had a couple of overlapping old agreements and pieces kind of pieced together until now. Well, basically what happened was after the Trump administration, we entered into what we call a global settlement period where we had a limited reopener. So we were continuing on with the 2011 master agreement with a tentative reopener of 12 articles, basically. And then the parties kind of slogged through those articles and we weren't having a lot of progress. And then I think through the efforts of both parties, the agents he kind of just wanted to boil it down to say, hey, we've got hiring problems. Can you just focus on that? And we come to an agreement that we just kind of made changes in one article and the rest of the articles rolled over basically from the 2011 agreement. So good deal for both sides. And we're moving forward. Now, does the new agreement then look a lot like the 2011 agreement that kind of expired and then you had some disagreements over some important clauses in the Trump administration, and there was an arbitration council that looked at those and sided with the administration. That's all out the window then now, correct? Well, basically, not exactly. So what we call is uh, every contract has a duration, and as they come up on that duration, they decide whether they want to reopen the contracts partially or all of it. And then we also have the decision whether we want to open the contract or not. Generally, unions don't open contracts unless they have a really bad contract. This is a good contract. The 2011 contract has some good provisions in it. So basically, when they decided to do this limited reopener, we went through that since the Biden administration. 
And so we weren't moving quickly through that. So they just, the parties came together and accelerated, just focused on the one article dealing with what we call merit promotion, which helps the agency hire folks. And we need more folks considerably, Tom. So I think it was a good deal for both people and it got us through our disputes. And that's what's going out for ratification, everything except that Article 23 merit promotion. Got it. And so what should members know that's good in this contract generally, do you think? Generally, I think everything that is already there except 23. Now, the 23 basically has a shortened duration for vacancy announcements that people can apply for. So that's a change when it comes to area of consideration. If they want to go outside, obviously, they can go outside. People can apply like they're an external applicant as well. Then you get veterans preference. But those are the changes. The agency really was looking to ramp up acceleration, as you know, probably by doing interviews with other places or federal agencies. You know, time to hire is very big with OPM and the federal workers just generally. And so they thought that would get them to their goal. And we need a lot more people and our internal presidents say, bring them on. We need more people. <laughs> we, You know, we're looking at an older retirement age and if we want to be around, we have to make some changes as well. Right. So this will bring in people more easily. Yeah, exactly. All right. We're speaking with MJ Burke. She's first executive vice president of the National VA Council of the American Federation of Government Employees. What happens now? I mean, this is an agreement between the negotiators and VA leadership. Got to be ratified, right? Right. It's an accelerated ratification process, or what I know of an accelerated. So in the next 60 days, we have 60 days, basically, for that to go out to them to hold their special meetings, to send in the votes of their members on this article. But for the most part, the 2011 agreement rolls over. And so that was like the huge caveat, basically, for enticing us to ratify. So I'm anticipating positive outcomes for this. This is a good contract, generally speaking. You know, there are vestiges in that contract that's applicable to all workers and it still allows local tailoring for a local union to have hours of work if they want to have, define seniority if they want to have it locally different from one place to another. And so that's really gives local presidents a maneuverability as well. And so that's what we're looking forward to. And we think we're not going to have a problem with ratification. And VA employees would be as other federal employees in terms of probation periods, procedures for discipline and dismissal that the Trump administration sought to change. Yeah, I think for the most part, I think the agency, you know, we have a different just to get down on the weeds a little bit with you, Tom, on that one. But, you know, for nurses and doctors, they have a little longer probationary period than what we call Title V and wage grade, generally speaking. And I think you're referencing what we call 714 actions, not 713 actions, which is, you know, the accountability piece for supervisors and managers. The 714 actions that you were referencing, or I think you were referencing from the Trump administration, you know, the administration has taken the view that they thought they didn't need it. There was some litigation around, you know, making sure that they followed the collective bargaining agreement regarding what we call PIPs, performance improvement plans, and not just firing people at will uh, unless, you know, like it's egregious kind of behavior. So like due process rights kind of thing. 
it'll feel like Title V to Title V employees and Title 38 to yes. Title 38 employees. Right, exactly. So it follows the same legal standards and legal burdens as it did prior to the Trump administration. And what do you think took so long for the Biden administration to come around? Because, you know, I mean, the Trump administration had its ways, (laughs) but you would have thought that, gosh, Dennis McDonough would have gotten this done in the first month. I think if you're just asking me, I think some of it is mentality, even though they talk a lot of we're pro-labor kind of thing when you get across from agency officials in the HR realm and the attorneys of the HR realm. They don't think really operationally as much, I think, or that's my perspective. And I think sometimes when you get operations to operations, I think things go through. And when you enter a lot of legal realms, things get gunked up a lot longer. So we got it done, though. And so... I'm pleased and kind of surprised we had some logger jams there, but we made it through it. (laughs) Yeah, I guess everybody's pro-labor until they become management. (laughs) Exactly, Tom. Exactly. I don't know what you are if you're a worker or a management person. Or I've been both in my career. At the moment, (laughs) I am a card-carrying union dues-paying member myself. So. Oh, good. See, I communication worker, I assume. No, actually, SAG-AFTRA. Oh. Oh, great. Oh, I like great. to tell people okay. Brad Pitt and I are in the same union. Oh, okay. <laughs> Only he's better may, looking. And probably makes just a tad more money. Just than a tad <laughs> more money. Well, listen, good luck on that ratification. Okay, thanks, Tom. MJ Burke is first executive vice president of the National VA Council of the American Federation of Government Employees. Good having you with us. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Check off the federal drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, more and more agencies share dollars across funding silos. But first, the biggest federal employee union, AFGE, expands its international presence. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Some 10,000 federal employees working in Europe will soon be eligible for the American Federation of Government Employees. AFGE has launched a new local as it expands coverage in Europe. Here with details, AFGE's special assistant, Peter Winch. Mr. Winch, good to have you here in studio. Good morning. Glad to be here. Give us the situation now for employees in Europe. This is not a brand new footprint for AFGE entirely, is it? AFGE is the largest federal employee union and the largest union for DOD employees. That's the main group that's in Europe. And we've always had a few members in Europe, and we're trying to get a lot more right now. So the Department of Defense then dwarfs, say, the State Department presence or USAID and some of the other agents that have a regular foreign overseas presence? That's right. Recently, the Biden administration made available Uh, information about federal employees who don't currently have a union and could be organized. And they're showing about 10,000 federal civilian employees in Europe. Almost all of them are from Department of Defense. And you are forming a local, so it's really a geographical local more than an agency local or a function like Social Security or VA. Those 10,000 More than a 1,000 of them work for Defense Health Agency, which is a newly created part of DOD. And although it's Europe-wide, most of them are in Germany. That's where the concentration of federal civilian employment is in Europe. So that's 1,000. What about the other 9,000? 
they typically work for the Army or the Navy. One of our existing locals is at Naval Air Station Naples, and we're trying to build that local up as well. What we hope is that this new local, Local 14, will spawn other uh, locals. We'll hold FLRA recognition elections like for Defense Health Agency Europe region, and we'll go from there. And we're getting a tremendous amount of interest. People have been calling us really since Biden has been elected. We get a lot of issues raised to us and no recourse for federal employees. So we want to give the federal employees over in Europe some recourse. And when you say FLRA, selection to organize under the Federal Labor Relations Authority? Yes, I'm sorry, the acronym. So Federal Labor Relations Authority ensures that federal employees have the right to a secret ballot election on union representation if they want one. And it appears to us that many federal employees in Europe do want to have a union. So AFG is ready to be that union for them. Right. Now, when they have that election and say, yes, we want to do this, that doesn't automatically get AFGE in there. What if they said, well, NTEU or something? (laughs) We have to gather a showing of interest from the federal employees in order to ask the FLRA to hold an election. So so you will be sort of there before the election, and therefore you would presume, well, since they got us to this point, that's the union we want. We now have one of my colleagues living in Germany and able to provide representation for people who join AFG in Europe, especially in Germany, but Europe-wide. And uh, his name is Javier Soto. And he's been an AFG attorney for many years now. He's living in Germany and ready to represent dues-paying members over there with uh, EEO complaints, uh, Merit System Protection Board, and other statutory-type complaints. Uh, We don't have a negotiated grievance procedure in place yet, but that would be our ultimate aim. We're speaking with Peter Winch. He's special assistant to the national vice president for District 14 of the American Federation of Government Employees. Now, there's District 13 that's going away. You're reorganizing a little bit the union itself there, correct? Um, Originally, the AFG districts were set up on the old Civil Service Commission, and there were 15 of them. The 15th district, we emerged with the 14th some time ago, and it covered Europe. So at times, we had several locals in Europe. But as I say, we only have one of those remaining. But what happened was Department of Defense put in a rotation policy. Most of our members had to rotate out after a couple of years. We lost our leadership, you know. And now things are different. Post-COVID, we can do a lot on teleconferencing. We have an uh, uh, AFG lawyer station in Germany. And we're ready to use new technology to rebuild in Europe. And that's what's different. Got it. And you do have some employees in Europe in DOD already. Defense Contract Management Agency Europe is organized and part of AFG. I I happen to have organized them a few years ago. We want to do similar things with Defense Logistics Agency, which has a large warehouse operation, logistics operation in Germany. And uh, federal civilian employment is growing in Europe because of some of the tensions and conflicts that we hear about in the Ukraine and so on. And what's the selling proposition? Why should someone want to join AFGE? What we hear is that, like Defense Health Agency, instead of a two- or three-year rotation, they're now offering a seven-year rotation, which is pretty much permanent employment in Europe. But you have to stay in your supervisor's good graces at all times or right back to the States you go. And that is not the kind of process that AFG favors. We favor due process 
and predictability. We think DOD should start moving away from this rotation idea in general, but we think federal employees deserve to be able to be whistleblowers, to raise questions on the job and not have the threat of being returned to the United States immediately, which is where they are now. And when they are returned to the United States outside of the regular rotation or even at the point of rotation, they stay with the same agency? Generally speaking, it's back to a a base where you worked previously. If you're defense contract management agency, that agency they work in, often they work doing quality control in a defense contractor plant. And so they'd come back to the United States. So the worry is if they blow the whistle now and get immediately rotated, they could be rotated from a nice office doing brain power type of work to being relegated to a steel desk at the back of a warehouse with nothing to do. Perhaps, Tom. These are, if I'm a quality, That's how my mind runs, if I'm a quality assurance worker in Europe, I'll come back and do that same work in Georgia or wherever I came from. There's an attraction to working in Europe, which is why they started this rotation But some of the reasons DOD offered was that technology was different. Those things just don't apply anymore. And it would be better to have the stable workforce, especially in medical fields. You want to have a continuity of care, and you don't want your doctors rotating out. Nurses and doctors are very hard to hire right now, and you don't want to have this really not defensible rotation policy continuing. So it's more predictable and more stable then for both the employee and the agency. AFG is a mission-supporting union. We support DOD's mission. And what we're trying to do in Europe is to be a mission-supporting union, to have an advocate on the job for your interests as a federal employee and to support the mission of your DOD agency. And what are the timelines and schedules here? I mean, when does this election take place? When does it get certified? And how long will this all take? Well, we would hope to file for an election at Defense Health Agency continent-wide. And we have a new logo, which is based on our U.S. logo, but the map of Europe. And we have a new card for people to fill out if they want to have an election at their workplace. And if they contact AFG and we're getting a lot of contacts. They can join by what we call e-dues. So I work for District 14. We have Local 14, and the dues are $14 if you're an at-large member. And if we succeed in these elections, it'll be $20, and you get all the benefits of membership then. But you hope for that election to take place in 2023? I believe with the interest we've gotten Our plan would be to file a few elections this year and to build up a real presence in Europe with hundreds of members. And after an election, say the majority of people at a particular site say, yes, we want this, is there an audit process before FLRA certifies it? The uh, ballot goes to the eligible employees, and they vote. The choice of no union must always appear on the ballot in the federal government. If they vote for union representation, AFG is certified, and then DOD has a legal obligation to bargain in good faith with AFGE. All right. Well, good luck on that whole drive. Peter Winch is special assistant to the National Vice President for District 14 of the American Federation of Government Employees. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, more and more agencies share dollars across funding silos. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Shared funding, more digital services, more fluid workforce models. Those are among the federal government trends in this year's study by Deloitte. The director of Deloitte's Center for Government Insights, Bill Eggers, joins me with the details. Bill, good to have you back. Oh, it's wonderful to be with you again, Tom. And let's talk about that idea of shared funding. This really caught my eye because, you know, funding is by structure, stovepiped, you know, among federal agencies because of the way the whole system is set up. But yet one of the cross-cutting trends that you have identified is tackling funding silos. Tell us more. Absolutely. The major theme of the report is looking at walls coming down, dissolving of boundaries between levels of government, between the public-private sector and nonprofits, and all the ways governments are trying to really break down silos. And as your listeners know, the funding silos is really one of the biggest issues in terms of why we have a lot of these silos. And so they can hinder progress on key initiatives. And what we're seeing is that government leaders increasingly are recognizing these shared funding models are needed to incentivize collaboration between agencies. In the U.S. federal government, we're seeing that, of course, with the Technology Modernization Fund. We're seeing this all over the world in the movement towards life events-based service delivery, where you need to, where you're focused on birth or death or losing a job or disability, and you need to bring together a lot of the different agencies to deliver that service uh, for that individual So increasingly, what we're seeing is mechanisms around pooled funding. For instance, in Australia, in New South Wales, they now have a $2 billion digital restart fund, which is all about pooling that funding towards offering more of a whole of government sort of approach to service delivery. And how do agencies go about doing that? Because they get their funding and they get their funding for their agency. What's the mechanism by which they can pool resources effectively to be able to collaborate. What we're seeing is a number of different models right now. So, of course, one of them is when you have it at the central level uh, where they have different funds and governance structures for cross-agency, cross-governmental initiatives. The Technology Modernization Fund is an example. Singapore has a very ambitious whole-of-nation approach where they actively collaborate along those lines also have seen certainly previously a lead agency model where a lead agency receives the funding then to bring together other sort of entities. We are seeing also, so if you think about the Technology Modernization Fund, it's invested over $500 million in 33 projects across 18 federal agencies, and they've really been cross-cutting cross-agency approaches. So the funding piece and the governance elements are really, really important with that. We also are seeing this even at the state level. The state of California created a community economic resilience fund to promote regional resiliency. So setting up those funding structures correctly is really, really important where you have that pooled funding that goes across agencies and levels of government. All right. And the other trend that caught my eye was fluid government workforce models. I'm presuming that's the leftovers or the trend that's left as the worldwide pandemic ebbed away. And now people are discovering new ways of working and so forth. Is that happening in the United States or is it mostly overseas also? 
Well, the fluid government workforce, it really goes beyond that. They're embracing flexible talent models to mobilize skills in different areas, such as cybersecurity, AI, data science. There are a lot of agencies are beginning to look towards skill-based workforce approaches at the center rather than traditional jobs. We're even seeing a number of states, uh, Pennsylvania, Indiana, and Maryland, who have actually said that we're no longer going to require college degrees for a whole host of different jobs. So in having more flexibility focused on skills, we're also seeing hybrid work, but also collaboration as a core workforce competency. So an example of the flexibility within the government workforce is the movement towards talent marketplaces, which we've seen at NASA, EPA, and within the military, where people can go from project to project, enhance their skills, and have mobility within government, which is something that all of our surveys show is really important to Gen Z and millennials. And in the U.S. federal level, I guess we're seeing pay flexibilities applied to certain careers where there's talent needed. That would be another example. Absolutely. We're certainly seeing that in the cybersecurity area and the data science area and other areas. It's just a, a real big movement, whether it's around career paths, performance management, to more fluidity, more agility around how to use different employees, where they can work, and really bringing people together and really trying to connect better people's skills development and career progression. In Argentina, they have something called the Design Academy at the Government Lab, and they're trying to develop a much more flexible, data-fluent public sector where they've educated more than 15,000 public servants in just the first three years around some of those core skills. And they've even gamified this uh, where you get points for attending a different lecture. So those are, are just some examples of knowing that people, you know, as we live longer, as people move around more, they're going to need to develop their skills on a regular basis. And how can government as employer help to both catalyze and encourage that. We're speaking with Bill Eggers, executive director of Deloitte's Center for Government Insights. This idea of tailored public services and the authors of that particular segment were the United States, but also Canada and Singapore, which has been innovative in a lot of ways over the decades. Tailored public service, what does that mean? And does that get government away from treating the billionaire and the pauper alike who both go to socialsecurity.gov? Tailored public services is one of the biggest digital trends and customer experience trends we're seeing in government. It's really about enabling greater personalization by government and really focused on moving away from a one-size-fits-all approach towards one that really focuses on what are the individual needs of citizens and businesses. And the way we've looked at it, there's kind of a spectrum. So you start off some services, one size fits all, it might be road repair, fire protection, but then you move towards customer segmentation where you're doing demographic targeting. It could be elderly, low income people or veterans or geographic targeting by region. And then as you move up the personalization spectrum, you're having more personalized proactive services. And that's around things like life events, births, deaths, job losses, or suggested services. If you qualify for X, you may also benefit from Y. And then we have at the highest level, most tailored is what we call government for one. And that's when you fully tailored, individually customized, designed around a constituent's needs 
and personalized. And of course, omnichannel and increasingly generative AI is going to be involved in that. So we are seeing that again as a very, very big movement right now around digital government. And we've done a survey of citizens all over the world that's going to be out in a few weeks. And that looked like people are willing to provide more of their data in exchange for much more customized services. So we see this as a trend that is really accelerating dramatically. And one more I wanted to ask you about was back office innovations, improving mission performance. Again, a lot of back office work was done because of the pandemic, but I guess you're going to tell me it goes beyond that really. But you need that enabling base of technology for people to do anything else pretty much nowadays. Yeah, I mean, I think the wall between the back office and the front office and that mindset really won't survive because I think we're seeing much more of a blend of the agencies really should view back offices as mission enabling offices key to their organizational mission and really focusing all the different ways in this could involve that your back office operations can actually help to achieve mission. And, you know, some of the technologies, of course, are AI and cloud that enable that. But we're seeing a lot of really interesting examples from Canada, Transport Canada, to Sweden, to Portugal, where they're using things such as digital twins and integrating data from various verticals in order to help them optimize bus routes and garbage routes and best times to collect data. And really in looking at how, what are all the different ways these back office innovations using these new technologies can help to enable massive improvements in mission performance. That's what that trend is all about. And it's a very, very promising thing. So I think as we look to the future, this sort of back office versus front office dichotomy is increasingly going to be blended. This report is pretty optimistic. I mean, it seems like the sense is things are getting better in terms of mission delivery and government as a place to work. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the government trends are really about each year, and this is our fourth year, looking at what are the biggest innovations we're seeing in government management technology all over the world, highlighting those in the hope that other governments uh, can learn from them and adopt them. And I think a key piece of this year's theme is that a lot of these things are happening irregardless of COVID. Certainly COVID accelerated uh, some of the developments, but some of these developments have been happening for a number of years. The tackling funding silos is something that public management experts have talked about for many decades, and we're finally starting to see some really innovative funding models for that and also governance models. So a lot of innovation all over the world, and it's an exciting time. Bill Eggers is Executive Director of Deloitte's Center for Government Insights. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that 2023 trends at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Employee engagement and satisfaction scores on average are still on the decline in the 2022 Federal Best Places to Work rankings from the Partnership for Public Service. Even with that slightly downward trend, though, some agencies still managed to shine. The partnership held breakfast ceremonies for the top-rated large, medium, and small agencies. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman attended and files this report. Only 19 of the 74 agencies in the partnership's 2022 rankings either improved or held steady in their engagement and satisfaction scores. 
Even many of those topping the charts, like NASA and the Government Accountability Office, both number one agencies in their respective categories, saw decreasing scores. But despite the general decline, some are still showing positive signs. For one, the employee engagement and satisfaction score for the Small Business Administration jumped up by almost six points. The agency also ranked sixth overall out of nearly 30 mid-sized agencies and earned the title of most improved this year from the partnership. Federal News Network got more from Elias Hernandez, SBA's chief human capital officer. What we've done in our organization is stay connected with our employees through the pandemic and even prior to the pandemic. That's something that we always do in the agency, promoting uh, the agency's mission, uh, ensuring that our employees are engage in the organization, but most importantly, ensuring that our employees understand that when we take surveys and they generate feedback for us, that leadership actually take actions on those uh, on that feedback that's coming in. We help organizations uh, with an SBA to prepare action plans to improve in the areas that have been identified during the FBS process. Beyond looking at the data and addressing problem areas when they arise, the arguably more crucial part for agency leaders is to first listen to their employees and then tell them the decisions or changes they're making and why. SBA's Hernandez explains. We focus all the way across the organization, listening to the feedback that our employees are providing us. With regards to the satisfaction the employees have in the organization, we look at information related to resources. Uh, we look at uh, information related to promotion opportunities in the organization and the overall leadership development process of the organization. And we take the feedback of our employees, we analyze the strategies that we have in place, and we make modifications based on that feedback. The key thing, once again, is for us to always communicate back to the employees that we are listening to their, their information, we are taking action on the information, and we are actually modifying the strategies to address their points of views. At the National Science Foundation, the score for engagement and satisfaction dropped slightly, but NSF still ranked second overall for mid-size agencies. NSF leaders are looking for reasons behind the score change this year and how they can approach different solutions. Wanzi Gardner is Chief Human Capital Officer at NSF. What we're trying to do is make sure we're communicating to our staff. They're clear hearing our message and we're hearing them so we can make sure. And so I look at that blip as trying to figure out how we work in this hybrid environment or what I call more of a distributed environment. We have people that are remote, we have people that are hybrid in the office. And trying to communicate, not connecting but communicating is key to that and we need to do a better job communicating. The Partnership for Public Service, which compiles the annual Best Places to Work rankings, reported an overall engagement and satisfaction score of 63.4 out of 100. That's about one point below the 2021 score and another four and a half points below 2020's score. Max Steyer, president and CEO of the partnership, says uncertainty over return to office plans continues to be a stressor for federal employees and is likely still contributing to the declining scores. Here's Steyer. This two-year downward trend is a clear signal that leaders across government must address workforce concerns and reverse the slide, which we know is possible considering that more than a quarter of agencies had scores that increased or held steady. Again, when we look at these averages, I think it's so much more powerful when we pull apart and look at the variation across government and within agencies. Now, if we think back, there were obviously many issues that were occurring when the survey was out in the field, including evolving return to the office policies, high inflation and uncertainty about pay increases, large new initiatives like the American Rescue Plan, the Infrastructure Act, 
that agencies had responsibility for implementing. But human capital leaders say regardless of what the factors are that may influence the scores, it's important to communicate with staff members. Here's SBA's Chico Elias Hernandez. Stay connected with your employees. Share information with your employees, you know, whether it's good information, bad information, or and also get them engaged into the decision-making process of the organization, right? They need to be engaged. They need to understand why we are making the changes that we are making. They need to understand the impact of our decisions. And ultimately, we want them to be champions of the decisions that we make. The General Services Administration was another agency with a slightly declining score, but the agency still ranked fourth overall, holding on to a top-five position that it received in last year's rankings as well. To maintain its status near the top, GSA leaders say they try to incorporate suggestions from internal staff as often as possible. GSA Administrator Robin Carnahan spoke at the partnership event. We know that the best ideas about how to attract talent come from our team. We talk to them about it all the time. We use internal surveys to understand how we can better meet the needs of the folks on our team. We use new tech tools. We embrace training. We are also doing lots of things to make it more accessible. One of the things we did over the last year was centralized uh, American Sign Language interpretation in one place in the agency so anybody could access that before it was hard. And we've, we found that having these kind of feedback loops, not just with our customers, that's really important for us, but the same kind of feedback loops internally inside of our organization is what helps keep our culture strong. For the Department of Health and Human Services, which held on to its number two spot for large agencies, the focus will be looking at strengths in some areas of its massive workforce and adjusting others to replicate those successes. Andrea Palm is Deputy Secretary at HHS. We've set specific targets. Uh, We are beginning to execute them. We have dashboards that are available internally to all staff. They can understand um, the, the scores of their agencies, what the action plans are, how people are executing against them, and continue to provide feedback as we move uh, to do this work um, with, with higher and higher uh, excellence. Um, and we continue to look across the department for best practices. We have uh, agencies who have been engaged in this kind of work in ways that others haven't. So how do we, how do we lift all boats? How do we use what we know works in NIH, for example, in another part of the dar- department and vice versa? So we've got lots of work to do, but we are committed to this. And I think it's really um, uh, important and is a personal um, priority of mine. Looking forward to the upcoming Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey this year and next year's rankings from the partnership, the National Science Foundation is targeting a few key areas. Here's NSF Chico Gardner. We're trying to make sure we upskill and we reskill our people to be able to work in this, in this environment. We're also trying to make sure we give our managers and employees the soft skills that are needed now to work in this new environment. Things that we didn't think about before are more important now. How do we engage each other? How do we talk to each other? When we're on the screen, it's flat, and so the verbal and nonverbal cues that we, we used to rely on are not available anymore. So I think it's very important as we go through this new era that we learn new soft skills to make sure that we're communicating and delivering the message that we need to the American people. Gardner's advice to agencies who might be struggling, patience. It's not going to happen overnight because, first of all, it has to be a sincerity and commitment and transparency by senior leaders that so this is important. This is not about lip service. It's about actions. My grandmother used to say sometimes, I, your actions speak so loud I can't hear your words. And so it's very important that the actions of the leadership and the administration of these organizations are committed to the health, welfare, and safety of employees. Drew Friedman, Federal News Network.
Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, AFGE and the Veterans Affairs Department conclude epic negotiations. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tamman. 